Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. And unfortunately, Abby couldn't join us today. She really wanted to, but uh, she had something unexpected come up, and she uh, will join us for the next episode. But lucky for you guys, uh, we have uh, one of my favorite guests on Media Roots Radio today for you, Tom Secker of Spy Culture. Tom, thanks for coming on Media Roots Radio again. Thanks for having me again. It's always nice to talk to you, Robbie. Yeah, I mean, you're. I, I love talking to you, Tom. We've uh, we've done some podcasts together on this podcast. Uh, you've had me on Spy Culture, and we've also had some great chats. Uh, the three of us, uh, me, you, and Pierce Redman on uh, Porkins Policy. Or actually, no, it wasn't on Porkins Policy. I think you actually hosted those discussions, right? Those those 9-11 movies that we talked about oh those ones yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the 9-11 b movies <laughs> those were those were really fun so if anybody has listened to tom and i chat on this podcast but haven't heard us talk about those go check those out it's a fun and funny discussion where we basically yeah we basically review 9-11 b movies which we didn't get around to reviewing all of them there's more out there but uh, the two that we did review were pretty entertaining it's definitely worth a listen, so check those out. Before we started recording, Tom confessed to me that he is not paying attention at all to the U.S. presidential elections, which will actually make this more fun. This, you know, a lot of people who are paying attention to what's going on right now, this is all stuff that they've already heard about and made memes about weeks ago. So I'm gonna I'm gonna run through some of this for you, Tom, and just get your reaction to it. So Joe Biden's campaign appears to be imploding collapsing um even though he's still polling rather high uh it seems like every single day he gets involved in another scenario where he just acts like a total crazy person or someone seemingly suffering from dementia and i'll just give you a few examples tom you can comment Hmm. on these so a few days ago at a town hall meeting uh an 83 year old man kind of casually brings up to him the idea that Hunter Biden, his son, was appointed on the board of the Burisma Gas Company. And he's asking Biden, why should we trust him if he's playing the same sort of Washington games that Trump is, you know, getting his son appointed to this gas company? Mm -hmm. And Biden responded by saying, you're a damn liar, man. That's not true. No one has ever said that. No one has proved that. And then the guy said, the guy responds by saying, well, I saw it on TV. And then so Biden responds by saying, well, that's not me. I'm not sedentary. So already Biden is starting to attack the man for, because the man was kind of an overweight guy. So he's starting to Mm -hmm. sort of imply that this guy was overweight and sedentary and it gets worse. Um, He says, the reason I'm running is because I've been around a long time and I know more than most people know. And I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And then, so Joe Biden continues to encourage the man to do push-ups and go running with him and take an <laughs> IQ test. And the room applauded to this. And so at the same time the, the room is applauding, there's a group of children in the back, Tom, and they're sort of standing there. And Joe Biden just starts to say to the guy, look, fat, look, here's the deal. <laughs> and as he says, fat... The children in the background erupt in laughter because they heard him say, call the guy a fat guy, basically. And hmm. so the Biden campaign the next day comes out with this damage control saying that he meant to say, look, fact, 
look, here's the deal. <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense. And it's just it's just fucking crazy to think that first of all, that he would even be like attacking this guy's physical appearance, this eighty three year old man at a town hall meeting, and he blurts out with look fat. Very crazy gaff level for a politician. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a gaff. So I don't even no, know no, what no, to call that, it. That's, that's beyond a gaff. That's that's just crazy stuff. I mean, he. I didn't realize the guy was so old. I mean, who who on earth do you think he's appealing to by kind of essentially bullying a you know guy in his eighties? Who, who who's in favor of bullying the elderly? Really? That, <laughs> exactly. Who's Who's the target market for this? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was like, it, like um, from everything you were just saying, this is just made me think maybe he's trying to pull a Trump. Maybe he's trying to seem a bit kind of unhinged and wild and unpredictable because he saw, you know, Trump play that card so much during his election campaign. And I assume this is what Trump is going to do again, that. If the election's going to be fought on those grounds, he wants to get in early as a crazy person. Because <laughs> um, crazy per- people get people riled up. They get emotional about it. And if they get emotional, they might vote for you out of just some kind of passionate link with this person that they've seen do these amazing things on TV. And you've got to remember, this is the country that you know gave us Jerry Springer. That was the other thing it reminded me of. Is like this sounds like something that would happen on Jerry Springer. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think you're hitting on something really. I, this is great to talk to you about this because you haven't been paying attention to this at all, and you just Don't had me. an incredibly brilliant insight here that I think is right on target. Is that there is something really similar about the way Joe Biden acts, sort of like a bull in a china shop compared to mm-hmm. Trump, and. I think that he's actually amped this up, this aspect of his own personality up for this election. And I, whether he realizes it or not, I think that it is because Trump sort of opened the door for this kind of behavior more in politics. And uh, Mm. Biden's personality, I think, if you look at all the candidates, you know, Republican or Democrat, even from the last election, and you lump them all together, I think Biden and Trump are more similar to each other than perhaps anybody else running. So I think that's I think that's really true, actually, uh, that there is something that he thinks that's going to help him by just acting this nuts and not giving a shit. I think that's also another part of it is he acts like he doesn't give a shit when he does these mm. things and, and they seem really embarrassing. So let me give you another uh, bizarre example. Um, so this is just he wasn't arguing with anybody at a town hall, <laughs> but he was around um he was at some kind of rally. There were a lot of African-Americans in the audience. And behind him were a lot of African-American children when he was making this speech. So here's, I'll read you the speech verbatim. He says, I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turned blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight. And they watched the hair come back up again. They'd look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. And I tell you what, the men are all now all men. The guys I work with down here, they're all guys all the time. They're all good men. So what do you think of that quote, Tom? What on earth is he saying? (laughs) That's a verbatim quote. I didn't even, it's not even truncated. That is verbatim. (laughs) (laughs) They haven't snipped out several different weird things and then strung them together. That's actually just what he said in that order. That's amazing. Yeah. Again, I think it's, I mean, 
Well, like you said at the top, it sounds a bit like maybe he's losing it a little. Maybe he's suffering from some kind of, I don't know, neurological disorder, whatever. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it sounds like the sort of, oh, he's trying to be folksy and down to earth and say things that are kind of headlines about, you know, men are proper men and, you know, that kind of guttural base thing that politicians try and do to appeal to let's be honest, fundamentally quite stupid people. Is it an attempt to do that that just didn't work? I mean, maybe it did work. Who knows? Um, we're not clearly not the sort of people he's trying to appeal to with this kind of statement. But sorry, I'm a little bit baffled by this as to, as to what to make of it, really. Um, but yeah, maybe it's something like that he's going for, and it just came off really badly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I one one of the first things I thought honestly was that they they tried to pizzagate Joe Biden uh, like two years ago because of all those videos of him sort of groping and being very touchy feely with women and and even children. Um, mm -hmm. So I was surprised that he would even mention anything about like children jumping in his lap, like fondling his legs. I just thought that was a very shocking, you know, direction he would go in. I mean, it just show, sort of shows me that he's just. It's almost like this form of autopilot. Yeah, like this folksy autopilot thing that he's doing. And it's fascinating. <laughs> so I think I think it's also testament to what happens when you don't have a PR team vet what a politician is going to say before they say it. Because for years we've had this where we're listening to politicians and we can tell this is a script that's been drummed into them by a team of half a dozen bloodless bureaucrats from some PR firm, and they've tested it from every different angle to make it as inoffensive and bland and pointless as possible. And, and politics has changed. You know, people have got sick of that. They've, got, they've wisened up to it to a certain extent. It's not effective anymore to be that careful and that precise in what you're saying. So I think some politicians are just kind of thinking, oh, no, I can just wing it. You know, Trump just winged it, and he's not even a politician. He doesn't even know the game properly. So how yeah. bad can I? How bad can I be? And the answer is this bad. <laughs> oh, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that there's definitely some level. There has to be some level of that going on here. Um, that's probably the best explanation. And also makes me wonder, like, I mean, if Biden is really this nuts, uh, what was it like behind the scenes in the White House between him and Obama? I mean, they couldn't be more opposite from each other. I mean, Obama, you just mentioned how calculated most politicians are and how everything's vetted. I mean, Obama is quintessentially like that kind of politician. Like everything he said was so vetted, you know, mm. and so dialed in. I mean, there's probably a team of people behind every speech that he did. So it's surprising to think, how did these guys behave with each other in the Oval Office? When no one was watching, I mean, I can't even imagine the dynamic. That's Joe Biden, um, mm. and and he's still uh, he's still polling quite high. People are sort of waiting, I guess, for Obama to come out and endorse him. But I don't know. I mean, I if I was Obama, just in terms of my own ego and legacy, I wouldn't endorse this dude at this point. I would no, be embarrassed. No, 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 nor would I. And, so. and Obama seems to be going into the kind of PR and possibly the entertainment world. He doesn't need the stigma that comes from, oh, you once endorsed this guy that said this crazy thing that made people on Twitter lose their minds. You know, he just, there's no point getting into that now. There's nothing to gain for him. It's all just gain for Joe Biden. So maybe it just won't happen. Yeah. I mean, there's probably some power dynamic behind the scenes where it's like, 
you sort of need to, you know, support the team kind of thing. And maybe Obama could lose kind of that team solidarity that supports him if he doesn't endorse o- a Biden. Yes, so okay. I, but, but I mean, that's, I mean, I, as far as a risk to him, I think it's more risky at this point to, to endorse him. I mean, based, just based on the way he's acting recently. So let's move on to, uh, to some other headlines that are happening right now. As you know, Tom, uh, there's an impeachment inquiry, or actually the impeachment hearings just started. Nancy Pelosi has actually admitted in a town hall on CNN this week that, um, that while she is really behind the impeachment of Donald Trump, somebody actually asked her, why did she not impeach George W. Bush? Because if you remember correctly, she actually, they took the House. The Democrats took the House, I believe, in 2007. There was at least a year where they could have started an impeachment inquiry in George Bush. Mm -hmm. And Nancy Pelosi said, she actually admits in this CNN town hall appearance that she knew George W. Bush was lying to the public to start the Iraq war, but she did not feel it was an impeachable offense. (laughs) So... What's your comment on that? Well, I th- I think as if there was ever ever any doubt, but I think that confirms and conclusively so that impeachment is merely a political tool. It has absolutely nothing to do with accountability or holding presidents accountable to the laws of the country that they're presiding over. Because, I mean, the absurd thing about this latest round of impeachment drama with Trump is that it makes absolutely no sense. If Trump is the thing that liberal media and quite a lot of Democrats have been saying he is for three years, some sort of covert Russian sleeper agent or whatever, then what on earth is he doing illegally colluding with Ukraine? That narrative just makes no sense, right? So, yeah. um, <laughs> so one of those two things cannot be true, possibly both of them. But to be honest, from the sound of this phone call, it does seem like Trump was doing his usual freewheeling thing and probably wasn't even aware that what he was doing was potentially illegal. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, In any case, I don't actually know what was said on the phone call, so I can't be sure. But you know what I'm saying here, that for ages they were saying, oh, we've got to impeach Trump over Russia and over hacking the election, blah, 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 blah. And then that kind of died down after the Mueller report came out and wasn't anywhere near as conclusive or strong as everyone was hoping it would be. And so now we've got this Ukraine thing. And all these people who are now calling for impeachment of Trump over this seem to have forgotten that only a few short months ago, they were accusing him of being a Russian secret agent. So it's clear that impeachment is just a tool of political opportunity um, and has very, very little, if anything, to do with actually, you know, making sure that even the president is subject to the law. And that comment by Pelosi is basically an admission of that, that, oh, there wasn't enough political hay to be made from impeaching over that. So I sort of decided in my own mind that, oh, no, this isn't really breaking the law. This isn't really an impeachable offense, even though it's an illegal war based on lies, which is presumably far worse than, you know, one phone call. Yeah. I mean, it is really fascinating to go back to just that George W. Bush era and it's hard it's the media is so slanted against trump now in a in a really transparent way they're very very anti-trump i mean except for fox news of course but back during the george w bush administration there was very little 
critical stuff coming out through the mainstream media that was actually against the George W. Bush administration. It only started, the, the general public sentiment against the Iraq war started to turn in a second ter- term. And then the media sort of started to go along with that a little bit. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I mean, it was it was mostly just sort of written off as, oh, these are just liberal. You know, they even said people uh, had Bush derangement syndrome back then. I think it was Charles Krauthammer who coined that. So there, like even Nancy Pelosi, I mean, I don't, there was very few times where she came out and really criticized the George W. Bush administration even back then. So they were really easily able to, you know, not do impeachment and act like it was okay because the general public and there wasn't enough outrage coming through the media. I think maybe that was the big difference. And perhaps Pelosi, if she sort of felt that pressure, you know, from CNN and MSNBC and all these different outlets, maybe it would have been different. But, you know, she was able to get away with that. And Kucinich was the one who actually did file articles of impeachment and ended up reading them by himself on the House floor. So that's the way that played out. Speaking of impeachment, uh, today, Trump's uh, Attorney General's IG report came out. And this IG report is supposed to show that there was illegal or improper meddling in the in the Trump campaign on behalf of the Obama administration or officials inside the Obama administration trying to disrupt Trump's 2016 campaign. A lot of people, I think, were hedging on this, actually somehow landing an indictment on John Brennan and other high-up officials in the Obama administration. And I keep trying to tell people, look, an attorney general like William Barr is not going to wage war with the CIA as an institution. Even if John Brennan had some kind of direct involvement in getting a wiretap on Trump's campaign and used the Steele dossier to do this, I just find it very hard to believe that an attorney general in the Trump administration would do anything to harm the CIA as an institution or even the FBI as an institution. So what's your take on that, Tom? I mean, do you think the Trump administration is ready to wage war with a former CIA director or any top official, even Comey? I doubt it. I guess my question would be, what do you mean by wage war? Because if we're talking about Trump saying some things, well, yeah, I'm sure he will. That's all the man really does these days is make statements about stuff. He's actually a surprisingly ineffective president in most respects, <laughs> given, you know what I mean, given his reputation for being this kind of bombastic dictator, he's more like just a sort of bombastic, dysfunctional loser who happens to be in the White House. But no, no, I don't, they, they don't have the, from what political base would they be attacking the CIA? Well, I, th- I mean, I think it mo- might be more, when I say wage war, I mean like line- landing an actual indictment on a top official of some kind or making them testify under oath, something like that. I'm just thinking, you know, Gina Haspel's involvement in, or deep, deep involvement in the torture program and in covering it up didn't prevent her from becoming Trump's director of the CIA. So you know, an illegal wiretap, it just doesn't rate, does it? I mean, these days, everyone's running illegal wiretaps on everything. So yeah, that that in itself would not be a 
kind of standout crime that would motivate something as serious as indicting a former CIA director. It's just, yeah, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, if that's the worst that they find, I think an indictment is extremely unlikely. And speaking of, uh, you know, these CIA officials who help cover up torture, one of the people involved in this is uh, Trump actually tapped John Durham to investigate, to do a broader investigation than what the attorney general's mandate apparently was into this. And what I find interesting there is that John Durham was actually, he was in a legal capacity to determine that the CIA's destruction of all the interrogation tapes, torture tapes, um, was okay. So he sort of gave the legal authorization to okay that. So yeah, it would be, I mean, it's completely fantasy land, I think, to think that this is going to somehow harm the CIA. But a lot of people have been hedging on that. So I guess we'll just have to see how it plays out, Tom. (laughs) But uh, I'm not going to hold my breath for anything uh, severely revelatory out out of this uh, IG report. No. Last headline I wanted to bring up is uh, something very odd that happened a few days ago at the Pensacola Naval Air Station in Florida, which, you know, is a familiar location probably to you, Tom. So a Saudi national actually being trained by the U.S. military to be a pilot at this uh, naval airbase killed three people in a sort of a mass shooting incident at the airbase. And his backstory is very strange um, from what the media is reporting right now. Uh, it said that he used to host parties at his home where they would watch mass shooting videos. And the New York Times reported uh, yesterday that six other Saudi nationals were detained for questioning near the scene of the shooting, including three who were seen filming the entire incident, according to a person briefed on the initial stages of the investigation. What comes to mind for you, Tom, or what, what's your reaction to this incident? I guess my reaction is, could this be anyone but a Saudi? That may sound a little, you know, racist or something, but I don't mean it like that. I mean it in the sense of, if it was someone from any other country who had some kind of reputation for being into watching horrible violence, and did you say hosting parties where they would watch this stuff? Apparently so. I mean, that's what the media reported. I don't know if it's bullshit or not. You would have thought, someone with that kind of background wouldn't pass the sort of background check you would need to be on a military base being trained by the US military. Except, of course, he's Saudi, and it seems that as far as the US government is concerned, it doesn't really matter what Saudi Arabia, the state, or even Saudi Arabians as individuals do. They will just, you know, whatever. (laughs) 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 They, They just shrug their shoulders and move on. The, the relationship, much like the relationship with Israel, the relationship with Saudi Arabia is too sort of built into the American political landscape that at this point things like this will happen and I, I, will, I can only expect this will be covered up. I mean, I'd, I'd heard that thing actually about the people being detained filming it and sort of maybe celebrating this in some way, which suggests, you know, a wider thing than just one guy going postal and shooting some people which certainly is something you would expect (laughs) that background investigators would figure out who this guy was if that is who he is um is part of some presumably extremist group or gang 
how did they not know this? What on earth is he doing being trained on a military base? Unless, of course, something much darker than that is that this was actually a terrorist being trained by the US military for some other covert purpose and it horribly backfired, which is also possible. Yeah, I mean, it it is awfully weird and it does, you know, um, does sort of give me pause about, you know, the potential for another sort of 9-11 style event um, using some kind of Saudi proxies or, you know, Saudis in general. But I think you're totally right about if this was any other, if this guy even came from Iraq, let's say if he was an Iraqi military guy, I think mm-hmm. they would have probably vetted him more than mm-hmm. this guy. Um, any other Middle Eastern country Egypt, I, that wherever. I can think of. Yeah. yeah, they would have vetted them more. Just on the surface, it does seem like there was very poor vetting done because he was Saudi and they get special treatment from the U.S. government. I mean, that's what it seems like. It's a very strange incident. Um, and I think it needs to be looked into deeper. And it also is coming off of the heels of a quote unquote terror attack um, in, I think it was in London mm-hmm. uh, that happened recently, which was also the suspect um, who I guess got killed by police um, after he stabbed some people um, was also a suspected terrorist with some background where you would think that he should have been vetted or or detained or something before that, but somehow he wasn't. And I don't know if you have any comment on that, I'm, and I may be even getting the details wrong. Do you know uh, much sure, about Sure, sure. Um, I know a bit about the background of that guy. Um, I mean, I will say, he wasn't just shot by the police, he was effectively executed by them. If you watch the video, the man has been restrained. There were two or three members of the public, one of whom had like a giant ornamental horn. <laughs> like an elephant's tusk or something. Um, And another guy who had a fire extinguisher. And they basically took down this guy who was running around stabbing people. They'd wrestled him to the ground. Someone had got the knife off him. You can see another guy running away with the knife. The guy's subdued. You can just arrest him. And then the police run in and just shoot him. Oh, wow. So I... That, I mean, seriously, what, the video is kind of disturbing, but you can see it. You can find these videos from several different angles online, and they all pretty much show the same thing. The guy's background is that, I think it was in 2011, 2012, something like that, uh, he was convicted of being part of a terror plot, and this was one of those no explosives, no weapons, no plan, no nothing terrorist plots where they'd basically been under MI5 surveillance and been caught talking about blowing something up. Well, <laughs> that's that's really not that big a crime, to my mind. It's a crime of thought and speech. So, yeah, he spent several years in prison. He was released in somewhat vague circumstances. It wasn't clear. He was initially under one of these, um, I can't remember exactly what they're called, but where the court passes an order that says they can't be released until they've been deemed to no longer be a threat. So, in theory, they could stay in prison forever. That was appealed against and overturned, and then he was automatically released halfway through his sentence, because that's what they do unless there's any pressing reason not to release the person. And then about a year later, he is at, bizarrely enough, a meeting for rehabilitating offenders, rehabilitating people who've been convicted of an offence and gone to prison, and he stabbed a couple of, well, stabbed several people, two of which died. And all of this seems quite bizarre to me, because 
presumably if they thought he was enough of a threat to send him to prison in the first place, when he got out, I mean, he had like, you know, an ankle monitor on, he had the usual restrictions on his movement, what have you. He must have also been under some kind of surveillance. They don't just let people out of prison and then ignore them. <laughs> this is actually what MI5 and Special Branch spend most of their time doing. So there's something odd about that, something very odd about it, and especially the way that he was just executed. They didn't need to do that. They could have put this guy on trial and, you know, done the usual. <laughs> What's becoming the usual thing in this country is that they just shoot them, to be honest. Um, the last several terrorist attacks we've had in this country the perpetrators have ended up being shot dead by armed police. Or that he was already subdued and they executed him. Very odd, disturbing. And also just, Tom, honest question. Would you say that these Islamic terror incidents that happened in the UK, are most of them that have happened in the last 10 years, do they seem pretty organic to you? Well, you said the last 10 years. We've only really had a handful. There was the... uh one in Woolwich, where Lee Rigby, the soldier, was murdered by a guy who was apparently previously approached by MI5 to be an informant for them, but turned them down, and also has a strange history in West Africa in terms of being apparently kidnapped by SAS and then put on trial and then released, and then he returned to the UK, and there's some weird stuff going on in his background. Then there really wasn't very much until the 2017 election, in the run-up to the election, um, <laughs> which ended in a hung parliament, totally unpredicted at the start of the campaign. But, you know, Corbyn made up a lot of ground on Theresa May, and they ended up more or less neck and neck. But as that was all happening, we got this string of terror incidents, three quite major ones, including the Manchester Arena bombing at the Ariana Grande concert. All of those are weird in one way or another. You have the perpetrator or alleged suicide bomber at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. It's not at all clear if he was actually a suicide bomber or if someone else set off that bomb by remote. It seems that he was there and he was carrying the bomb, but it's not at all clear whether that was a suicide bombing. Um, and his background gets into the whole... Uh, LIFG, Al-Qaeda in Libya, how we used them to try and assassinate Gaddafi in the 90s. His father was actually part of the group that did that and then fled to England after the assassination attempt went wrong. That was all a MI6 plot. That's why the Abadi family was in Manchester, right? That's why that guy was born in this country is because his father came here in the 1990s having fled after MI6 sponsored his terror group to try and kill Gaddafi. Why is this not part of the discussion? You know? Why is this background, which is actually critical to the whole question of who was Salman Abadi? Who was, you know, the Abadi family? What were they involved in? Why did he decide to go and bomb a arena concert? Um, so yeah, that one's extremely suspicious. In the one that happened, literally it was like two, three days before the election, and even was suggesting that the election might be cancelled because of it, one of the uh, perpetrators of that, when he was travelling on his way to Turkey, going through Italy, he told an Italian airport official that he was going to Turkey for purposes of terrorism. And then corrected himself <laughs> and said, oh, no, 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 I meant tourism. Um, <laughs> what the fuck? 
there is sounds some... like something out of four lions or yeah something. yeah absolutely the it really fuck? really is <laughs> for some reason this doesn't end up with him <laughs> mi6 and mi5 being alerted to this that this you know british citizen is traveling to turkey for purposes of terrorism <laughs> um and this guy was on the radar. The other two guys that were in, it was this attack where they ran a few people over in a van and then jumped out and started hacking at people with large knives. They were also all shot by armed police. They're all dead. All three of those guys were on MI5's radar. There are some reports even suggesting that they were under surveillance right up until the moment that they launched the attack, that there were MI5 people following that van and saw it start to run people over. Which, if it's true, I'm not 100% sure if that story is true, that's astonishing. And it kind of begs the question, what is the point of all of this? If we assume, just for a moment, that there's no strange shenanigans going on and these were genuine terrorists, if MI5 can get that close to them and still not stop an attack, what's the point? Why even have them? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's absurd. So yeah, I'd say most of them are really quite suspicious to be honest. Yeah, and by and and what you're saying just so people understand, you're not saying that these are false flag attacks just that they have very suspicious elements and and a lot of them seemingly MI5 or other uh, law enforcement could have put a stop to it. Uh, the, most of these guys were already in the system in some way or another and there were obvious red flags um at the very least. At the very least, um, yeah. they may be, I mean, they're not, I wouldn't call any of them false flags as such, because I think they were all done by the people that were said to have done them. Um, yes. So they certainly aren't sort of pure false flags in that sense. Whether or not they were intentionally allowed or in some way provoked to happen, it's a possibility. And because of the murkiness around all of this and the failure to hold inquests and inquiries and all of the things that they should actually do... And to some extent actually did with the 7-7 bombings and an awful lot of stuff came out about that that was incredibly incriminating and basically proved that MI5 had been lying their asses off for about six years. So I think that's partly why they're not doing the same thing with these more recent attacks is because, you know, if that sort of data came out again and then again and then again with another attack, you have to start wondering... What are MI5 actually up to? Are they trying to make terrorist attacks happen, or are they trying to stop them? Because they claim they're trying to stop them, but they don't seem to be doing a very good job. So the question is why? Yeah, it seems to be a similar model that the FBI uh, uses over here, where more often than not, almost every you know supposed Islamic terror incident or attempted incident that's happened out here it was found out uh, later to have been someone that was sort of already in the FBI system or was at one time an informant or someone they knew was an informant. I mean, the Boston Marathon bombing is a great example of what I'm talking about and how odd and murky that story actually gets when you dig into it and see all these connections. Mm. Uh, very odd. And there's also connections to Libya there as well and the, and the CIA and Tom, you and I did an entire podcast actually about a very strange incident that happened last year, uh, the Skripal Novichuk um, attack, nerve gas attack, mm -hmm. which is very, very strange, has a lot of bizarre twists and turns and a lot of holes in it as far as what the official narrative is. So people should go back and check out that podcast Tom and I did. 
it's about two hours long, but there's a lot of information in it. Have you been keeping up on that story, Tom, or what was your sort of inevitable or <laughs> what was your final final uh, conclusion on that after it sort of was all said and done? Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a bit of a tricky question. Yes, I have been <laughs> keeping up with that one. I mean, it's kind of died out from the news now. But I do have a, a friend who, uh, Kit, who's been on my podcast a couple of times recently, and we're looking at doing some more work together in various different topics. This is one of the things that we've talked about: is collating all of this different research into the Skripal case and presenting that in a, you know, some kind of video digestible format that is easy for people to take on, because almost every aspect of that story has now just sort of turned out to not be true. The most obvious thing, to be honest, and this is something, you know, it was kind of true from the first moment that all of this started happening, is that this isn't what Novichok does. If the Skripals had been poisoned in the way that the British government claims they were poisoned, they either would have passed out or been dead within minutes. They would not have been wandering around Salisbury for three hours, feeding the ducks, going to the pub, doing some shopping, going to a seafood restaurant, and then passing out on a park bench. It just doesn't make sense. That's not what Novichok does to people. It acts far quicker. It's far more lethal. So, and also, the other the thing Russians is... The Russians didn't invent a time-release version of Novichok, is what you're saying? No one's ever mentioned one. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and then, it, it, I mean, the whole thing just got ridiculous after a while. They, they removed the roof on Sergei Skripal's house. They said that this house was somehow so dosed with this Novichok that these two Russian agents with their perfume bottle somehow managed to cover this entire, you know, three-floor, <laughs> quite plush, <laughs> detached house, um, managed to cover it in so much Novichok that they had to remove the roof of the building the and replace fuck? it. Well, that clearly isn't true. So there was this thing with the, the ambulance that took the Skripals to hospital. Something like five months after the event, there was this... Big, big media splash of how they'd had to um, have this ambulance dismantled by a specialist, you know, chemical weapons decontamination firm or whatever. Because, again, it was so sort of covered in this horrible Russian poison. And I'm thinking, well, if it was that bloody contaminated and dangerous, you wouldn't have waited five months to do it, would you? So, again, not true. Uh, there was this weird thing with the ducks. Do you remember this? Did oh, you... I remember it very well because apparently, Tom... That was the picture. Did we already talk about this? How someone in Trump's administration showed him the picture of the ducks, and that's what convinced him to bomb Syria. <laughs> but continue. I don't yeah, know if we yeah. already discussed that. I don't think we did. I don't think that story had come out <laughs> when we when we got into this this uh, whole Skripal affair. Yeah, yeah. Basically, that Trump apparently was shown photographs by the CIA of ducks that had died in a park in Salisbury that had been fed by the Skripals that afternoon, and the implication is, oh, they died from poisoning, from the Novichok, what have you. The truth is, there are no dead ducks. No ducks died. It's been, you know, proven a dozen different ways that this never actually happened, and therefore either those photographs were faked or never existed, in which case, where did this story come from? And more to the point, there were several kids in the park. Bear in mind, this is, this is after the Skripals have left the house. They've supposedly got poison all over their hands that isn't coming into effect yet, for some bizarre reason. They go to the park to feed the ducks. They are giving bread to these children that is also supposedly covered in this Russian poison. None of the children get sick. 
They're all fine. They're all alive. They're, you know, nothing happened. And yet, supposedly, the table that they ate at in the seafood restaurant was, again, so covered in this poison that it had to be burnt. How does this story add up? This is so bizarre, Tom. It it, it gets weirder. I didn't realize. It just isn't true. (laughs) You know what I mean? You You read this stuff and you just come to the conclusion this story can't be true. That's not how they were poisoned. That's not what they were poisoned with. So just throw it out. We have to start again and ask who else might have done this and how and why. And what? I mean, what what even happened? Is uh, That's the question that keeps coming up for me is if they, were, if they actually did all this shit, removed the roof, burning things, dismantling an ambulance. I mean, it almost, in my mind, makes me think of like radioactive, but you can't, you know, you can't just burn a radioactive isotope out of existence unless you, you I mean, I, maybe you can with some kind of high powered, <laughs> you know, autoclave or whatever. But you know, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I, it's very, very strange. And from what I understand about that picture of the ducks, uh, the last thing that I read about it was that it was actually just a picture of dead ducks completely from somewhere else. It wasn't even, had nothing to do with the incident. Um, wasn't even taken at the same time. It was just like a random photo that was pulled from the internet. I had not heard that part of that story, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's what they did. Well, I guess that uh, that concludes our 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 recap of everything that's been happening in the news recently. But the reason I'm bringing you on, Tom, today is uh, because you've done this excellent video report that's based on a bunch of freedom of information request polls that you've done. It also ties into a subject that you've been focused on and dedicated to for many years. Your new video, Jack Ryan, the CIA and Venezuela, is pretty much a full-length documentary i mean it's 30 minutes not really a short film but it feels like a full-length documentary and uh it's this excellently put together presentation that you've done that's uh not just jam-packed with information but it's also at times funny i think it's great that you're doing these these sort of longer form videos now and uh, i hope you do more of them this is something i think that's relatively flown under the radar for most people, this whole Jack Ryan TV show. Most people know about Amazon uh, and the CIA via this this idea that they got this giant contract, um, that the CIA got this unprecedented contract through Amazon to mm-hmm. host cloud service servers for them. And this was a big deal like three or four years ago. People were talking about how Amazon is a CIA front. But... This Prime service, this Amazon Prime Studios or whatever they call it, they're producing, you know, these really expensive, high-budget, basically television shows, even though they're just on streaming, you know, their streaming service online. Mm. And this is a Tom Clancy-created character, uh, Jack Ryan, Mm. that has been played by multiple A-list Hollywood actors over the years, and most recently by the American Office actor john krasinski give us a little backstory about this jack ryan character itself and what was the first appearance of the jack ryan character in literature popular culture like what was the first film or or adaptation made out of tom this tom clancy character 
Uh, well, the character first appears in Clancy's first novel, The Hunt for Red October. He's the CIA protagonist in that novel. And so his first appearance in film was in the film adaptation of that several years later. I think it was 1990, Hunt for Red October, the movie, uh, where he's played by Alec Baldwin. Yeah, Alec okay. Baldwin. And he's kind of an American James Bond, but less action-centred. He's an analyst who gets dragged into field operations. You know, it's that kind of narrative. And so I think Clancy did design him with that in mind, that he is a representation not just of the CIA, but of American exceptionalism, of, in some ways, he's an agent of the American empire. And Clancy very much wanted to present him as a good person who was an agent of the American Empire. So yeah, then we got Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger in the 1990s, where he's played by Harrison Ford. Then The Sum of All Fears, 2002, where he's played by Ben Affleck. There was that other horrible Jack Ryan film in 2014, where he's played by Chris Pine. And now we've got John Krasinski in this very lavish, very cinematic, high-budget TV adaptation. Just so I get this correctly, so it's, it was Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford, Ben Affleck, uh, Chris Pine, and now John Krasinski playing the same character. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. In, in just the same way as you have, you know, Sean Connery and Roger Moore and everyone playing James Bond. Okay. And which is interesting, too, because there are sort of wildly different ages. Like Harrison Ford, <laughs> when he was playing Jack Ryan, yeah. was, was kind of an older guy. So that that will bring me to another question I have in a, in a bit. But Tom Clancy is a fascinating kind of U.S. government shill, in a way, mm. who, by my estimation, has had an enormous impact on the way national security officials think. But as I'm saying this, I'm actually sort of in my mind debating this chicken or egg thing about him did he just merely rip stories fed to him by intelligence insiders or officials or people from the national security state or was it the other way around does his fiction influence them or or was it cross influence um because the reason i ask this is because there are hundreds it's seemingly national security state officials maybe not that many maybe i'm exaggerating who seem very inspired by his fantasies and fiction. Yes. So people, for example, like Richard Pearl, even Richard Clark, uh, Stephen Hatfield, one of the anthrax suspects, and others from inside the National Security Establishment have written very, very similar books about fictional terrorist attacks, these you know nuclear uh, incidents, um, the sort of clandestine affairs that Tom Clancy has written about, and I just want to understand why do you think that is? Is what's what is that all about? Uh, well, there's sort of two questions there. The first is about the origins of this relationship between Clancy and the state, and the other question is why is it had such a huge impact, and why do you have? I mean, if you just go on C-SPAN's website, right? If you go on the archives and type in Tom Clancy, you will find endless references to Tom Clancy in all of these, you know, different Senate hearings. The 9/11 Commission, the 9/11 Commission were obsessed with Tom Clancy. Um, do you know about all of that? I don't know about that specifically, but I do want to, I want you to touch on that because when 9-11, like literally on the day of 9-11, my friend called me and was like, this is from a Tom Clancy novel. Tom Clancy was like, interviewed on the news on 9-11. Okay. Cause he was in his <laughs> mind, my friend was like, 
this I like this is already like predicted by Tom Clancy. Like yeah. and he was thinking that Tom Clancy, I guess, had already written about he had. some kind of World Trade Center attack or plane suicide attack. So yeah, had, go yeah, yeah. go on go into that too. <laughs> okay. So now we've got several <laughs> different questions. All right. Um Okay, the, the reason why he is so widely referenced is basically that he's had a huge impact. Massively popular author, all these different film adaptations, computer games, now TV show, the works. It's a, it's a huge kind of cultural phenomenon, almost on the scale of James Bond in this country. He's probably not quite as widely referenced and quite as sort of embedded in popular culture as James Bond is here in the UK, but it's approaching that. One of the main reasons for that is essentially that Ronald Reagan was in love with Tom Clancy. I don't think he would have become as big an author if Ronald Reagan hadn't been wandering around, both in private and in public, telling people how wonderful Tom Clancy is. There's documents where Reagan was talking about him on the phone to Margaret Thatcher, saying you have to read his new book. Oh, wow. There is, uh, there's an article on my site about uh, a speech by the CIA director at Bohemian Grove, where he references a conversation with Reagan, where Reagan's saying, oh, I read the new Clancy novel, and, you know, if this is what's going on, then we're screwed in our fight against the Russians. You know, we've really got to amp things up. Wow. It's, it's insane how sort of embedded and seeded Clancy and the whole Clancy universe has become in the American political establishment and in pop culture as well. In terms of where all this comes from, Clancy was a member of the U.S. Naval Institute, which is a non-profit, but it's based at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. I've actually been there. For the Hunt for Red October, as far as I can tell, all of that came from unclassified materials, from reports he got from the Naval Institute or, you know, things he got from other places that kind of laid out technical specifications of different ships and submarines, all of that kind of stuff. As time went on, after the success of that first novel... He got very close with CIA, NSA, FBI, U.S. military, even the White House. At one point, he was considered for uh, Bush's White House Space Council. His whole FBI file is basically a background check for that position. This guy knew a lot of people. Uh, he was meeting with Soviet defectors. How does that happen? Unless you're buddies with the CIA and MI6 and people like that. So we have to assume... After a while, he basically got co-opted by them, and they started feeding him little bits and pieces that they wanted to see in his novels, or just fed him bits and pieces to try and shape his views, and, you know, give him a bit of inspiration, so that maybe it's not so much about specific individual details, as it is about the overall values and worldview in Clancy's books, and subsequently in the films and everything else. So yeah, I think it started from that direction, with Clancy kind of reaching out to the state and wanting to be part of that, but he very quickly became part of that circle, and from then on, like you say, he was little more than a shill for the government. Oh yeah, 9-11. <laughs> okay. Yeah, did, he, did, did his fiction predict the 9-11 attack? Yeah, yeah, and he's been asked about this in interviews, and he basically said the answer is that you have to, in order to write the sorts of books that I write, you have to think like a terrorist. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's actually what he said in an interview. Um, this was in a book he wrote in the mid-90s called Debt of Honor, where a Japanese-American, not an Islamic terrorist, a uh, Japanese-American hijacks a passenger plane and crashes it into the Capitol building, I think. And this actually wipes out the whole US government and Jack Ryan ends up becoming president. Um, 
believe it or not. What? Yeah. Wait, so Jack Ryan, is is he in every single one of his books? I'm not sure if it's everyone, it- but it's most of them, yeah. He is, like, the main character in Tom Clancy's universe, yeah. Weird, okay. And so, yeah, in some ways that novel did predict at least the whole suicide hijacking into building element of 9-11. And, yeah, he was called up by CNN, maybe? Uh, certainly major news. He was, you can find this clip on YouTube if you look for it. Uh, he was called up on the day of 9-11 and asked about this, I guess, because there was lots of people sat there watching this thinking, hang on, this is a lot like a Tom Clancy novel. And he actually expressed a lot of doubt about it. He was saying he found it remarkable that these terrorists had managed to find one person to hijack a plane and crash it into a building, let alone four. He wasn't even thinking in terms of, you know, teams of hijackers. He was just thinking, wow. you know, even if there were only four, he said he, he'd find that very surprising that that would happen. Um, and he also kind of brought up the question of the air defences and why the planes weren't intercepted. <laughs> and was That's hilarious. Not, not like saying there was some kind of conspiracy behind it, but at least asking the question. And that question, yeah, that question like was on, reaction, you know, lots of, lots of people were asking that question that day. They were sat there going, hang on, or at least after a while, after it had sunk in, they were sort of thinking, hang on, how, how long were these planes in the sky before they hit the buildings? Couldn't they have been intercepted? Because, okay, if you hijack wow. a plane and crash it into a building 90 seconds later, there's no opportunity to do anything. But if it's half an hour or more, well, this is the US Air Force. Where were they? And Clancy was one of those people, sat there watching this on his TV, wondering what the hell was going on, like so many of the rest of us. Very interesting. Wow. I, I need to see that clip. I, I feel like I've seen every clip from 9-11, so that's definitely one I have not seen. And that's that's absolutely fascinating. And I guess it explains it explains to some degree what his role is, you know, with this. But I'm I'm still fascinated by this idea that all these sort of neocons and national security officials have also written their own fiction that's very similar to Tom Clancy. And I'm wondering, you know, were they inspired by Tom? Like, did he start this genre? Was this already sort of a thing? Like like Richard Pearl's book, uh, I, I can't remember the title now, but it's kind of similar to The Hunt for Red October, and it came out in like 1986 or something. I'm sure they were inspired by him. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, they must have been. Yeah, so it seems like, yeah. So tell us when this new Jack Ryan show first started production. How did you first hear about it? I mean, were you already interested in following the the Jack Ryan character and the many different iterations? And if you were, were you already familiar with John Krasinski's willingness, the actor who plays Jack Ryan in this one, his willingness to be used as a tool for U.S. government narratives before he appeared in this show, because he had appeared in a Michael Bay mm-hmm. movie about the Benghazi uh, incident. I first stumbled across Jack Ryan when the first season came out in 2018. I hadn't heard anything about it up until that point. I just saw it on one of the various illegal streaming sites that I use to watch free TV on the internet. And I thought, I've got to watch this. I'd been obsessed with Tom Clancy for years, because in some ways he is the American Ian Fleming. You know, he has created, to to a large extent, created what we now recognise as the American spy genre. So, in the same way that Fleming did for, for Britain. Oh, and just really quickly, you and you and Pierce had already been, you know, doing episode recaps and have already been really focused on how the show Homeland was sort of uh, putting out, you know, different variations of U.S. government narratives mm-hmm. 
before this. And this, I guess, arguably, this show is probably the first thing since Homeland that has is is close to that thematically, in that sense. I mean, there are a few other shows, but they aren't as high profile or as well made, to be honest, as Jack Ryan is. Um, so yeah, anyway, I I thought. I'm, you know, I've got this thing about Tom Clancy. I've got a lot of documents on Tom Clancy from, you know, CIA, FBI, all over the place, to be honest. And so I was well aware of who Clancy was, of, of how his books and the adaptations of them serve in our culture. So when I saw this show, I thought, I have to watch this. I wonder if there was some kind of government involvement. And then bang, about maybe eight minutes maybe 12 minutes into the first episode you see him cycling up to cia headquarters and you know walking through the lobby and doing the usual thing that happens in a cia sponsored production so i thought ah bingo um was that a, a shock to you because you've followed very closely when the cia lets them film there or, or you know other productions that have so like when's the last time the cia actually allowed any production to film there uh, 2014, 15, there were a couple of films. There's a film called Dying of the Light that stars Nicolas Cage, properly, you know, full-on unhinged Nicolas Cage. <laughs> okay. Um, it's not a very good film, but it's got Nicolas Cage in, so it is actually quite entertaining. <laughs> um, that, I think, was the last major film that shot there. There was actually an FBI documentary on the Glenn Shriver spy case that filmed at CIA headquarters. This, the FBI produced their own in-house documentary about this called Game of Pawns. You can find it on YouTube. That filmed at CIA, I think in 2014, maybe early 2015. But when the producers of the fifth Mission Impossible film, Rogue Nation, I think it was, uh, when they approached the CIA again in 2015, they were told you can't film at Langley anymore. There was some kind of, they'd made a decision they were going to not let people film at Langley for a while. And so there hadn't been anything for two, three years until Jack Ryan showed up. So this was quite a big thing. When I saw this in the show, I thought, ah, that's, I haven't seen that for, you know, like I say, two, three years. Um, so it struck me that this is an important show and, you know, I'll have to watch the rest of it and pay attention and <laughs> not just watch it as yet another spy show because I do watch a lot of them. Um, and... I knew about John Krasinski, I knew about 13 Hours, I knew about the CIA involvement in 13 Hours, which I also got quite a lot of documents out of the CIA a few months ago on that and wrote an article for Shadowproof all about it. And it seems that the CIA effectively removed anything from the script that implicated some kind of massive intelligence failure in the run-up to the Benghazi attack. <clears throat> because if you read the book, which obviously I did... Um, and compare it to the film. The book keeps mentioning how the CIA and the State Department knew about this militant gang nearby, knew that they were very hostile, even had warnings about an imminent attack, kept trying to do things to improve security, but all of their requests were knocked back. They were like, oh, we need more people, we need more physical security, better walls, all that kind of thing. None of it happened. And of course, none of that appears in the finished film. And I'm guessing that's what the CIA took out. The documents aren't that clear, but they basically say uh, we engaged with Michael Bay for the purposes of removing classified information that appeared in the report, uh, sorry, in the book, from the film. That's what they said. <laughs> that that was the purpose of working with Michael Bay. And the whole thing with Bay went a little wrong. He wanted to film at Langley as well, but they turned him down. So... You know, these filmmakers don't always get what they want. And I don't think the CIA got everything they want 
wanted out of that film. But nonetheless, I think they got most of it. So as far as the CIA are concerned, I think they won. On, but then it's Michael Bay. I mean, you know, he's an idiot. How hard can it be to get Michael Bay to do what you want when you're the CIA? Um, so, yeah, I knew about Krasinski in that film. I'd seen him in the film. And obviously then when I found out he'd been cast as the new Jack Ryan, I started wondering, you know, I didn't, I mean, I never watched The American Office. I don't know him as Jim from The Office. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, en- endless. It's better that way that you don't, because it's fucking terrible. <laughs> well, I never liked The British Office either, so obviously okay. the notion of watching the American version just never occurred to me. Um, yeah, does that answer some of your questions? I don't know. Yeah, no, it totally does. I mean... And there's also, he, he seems to have a background himself where he, you know, when he goes and does press appearances, he talks about how his entire family are military, that he, that he you know, was very excited uh, to take on this, this role in this Michael Bay film and this role of Jack Ryan because of his family history with the military. And I guess it was something very comfortable and a perfect fit for him in a way. I'm curious, since I haven't actually watched the show, I think I watched like half of the first episode, but you show in your in your documentary how the first season of this show is mostly anti-Muslim propaganda. Mm-hmm. And the there's a scene in it showing how he became radicalized or what you know what made him decide to become the special agent where it shows a child suicide bomber. And like a helicopter ride, pulling the pin on a grenade, I think, Mm -hmm. and blowing up everybody inside the helicopter. And he's the, I guess, the only guy who survives. Mm. Just a side question on that. Do they retcon Jack Ryan's backstory as a character in this whole, you know, series of Tom Clancy books or adaptations for narrative purposes? Or is this like a Jack Ryan soft reboot? Are they sort of... Is this a reboot of Jack Ryan, I guess I'm asking? Because given the fact that he was played by Harrison Ford in the 80s as an older man, what's the sort of explanation for Jack Ryan's history? Did they just sort of erase his backstory and be like, here's a new backstory? I'm a little bit confused by that. No, sure, sure. Um, He was always a Marine-turned-CIA analyst. In the original books, he's an ex-Marine. But he obviously didn't fight in Afghanistan because those books were... The first ones were written in the 80s. Um, Of course. So, yeah, this is a full reboot. It's not a soft reboot. There is no reference to the earlier Jack Ryan universe in any way. Um, In fact, in some respects, every time they've cast a new person in the role, it's been a reboot that doesn't really reference the fact that there's been a Jack Ryan who did some other stuff before. It's much more like the James Bond films, where if you like, each film is a story in itself. Each adaptation is a version in itself. Um, and s- But this is a little different, though, because it takes it's supposed to parallel real-life events where it's now showing his his origin story in Afghanistan, hmm. essentially, right? So it's so it's, I mean, it's not, it's it's similar. I see what you're saying about the Bond films, but this is like they're they're rebooting him in the present era it sounds like yeah okay yeah yeah that's absolutely what they're doing is that he is now a marine who served in afghanistan in you know presumably the 2000s in the early days of the war on terror or at least early decade of the war on terror um and that he then became a cia analyst 
or at least that he had some there's a bit in the first episode that references him working on Wall Street for a while in between and that's also something that appears in the novels that Jack Ryan is uh, quite well off he made a lot of money on Wall Street in a few, for a few years because obviously he's Jack Ryan he's a genius he's look at him he's so clever um <laughs> and that's the thing another thing i didn't <laughs> What kind of job did they say he had on Wall Street in the in the novels? Like, what was his? Was he like a high frequency trader? Like, what was he something doing? like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly, but yeah, yeah, something okay. like that. Very much a sort of you know derivatives trader or proper scumbag. Um, and so then, after having made all this money, he decided to go and work for the CIA. And then you look at Tom Clancy and you think, okay, so you worked in insurance. You had your own insurance firm before you became an author. And then you sold your insurance firm when you decided to go full-time with the writing, when it proved a success. Is there some parallel there between a guy who you know, <laughs> used to work in the financial services industry and then went to work for the CIA? Um, or did you want to be that man? Is that what Clancy always dreamed of, was somehow working for the CIA? And so when he befriended them and started sending them copies of his novels before publication so they could vet them and stuff like that, maybe that's actually what he always wanted, you know? Maybe there's a little bit of kind of wish fulfillment in the Jack Ryan character for Clancy himself. And there is, you know, there has to be, hasn't there? I mean, why would an author make up an adventure story if they didn't, at least part of them, want to go and be on that adventure? Isn't that partly why you write stories? Of course. I mean, it's it seems it does seem like some kind of wish fulfillment fantasy on some level for himself. Give us uh, some backstory or just go through season one and what is the actual plot of it and what did you see in it that seemed propagandistic and also what information did you find in terms of like official government narratives or government agencies wanting to shape the story or to be involved in the in the first season's production? I mean, the first season is, to be honest, a fairly standard, well-trodden ISIS terrorist wants to carry out WMD attack against America, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's a bit more sophisticated than that because they do dwell on the terrorist character's for longer than your average spy show would. And if you remember from Clancy's novels, they were very much uh, telling two sides of a conflict. In his classic Cold War ones, you get to see the Soviet characters in their own scenes doing their own thing, and you hear some of their motivations and thoughts and so on. So this is very much reflective of how the novels worked. And despite doing that, all of the pretty much all of the Muslim characters in the show are just cartoonish, stereotype Islamic terrorist villains. The sort of thing that we haven't seen for a while. Um, you don't actually get that many of them in, in spy shows. I mean, these days they're fucking obsessed with the Russians, so that's what almost every spy show is now about. But, um, of course, yeah. You know, this this felt like something from the early Bush days. You know what I mean? From this it was it's like very a much a sort of throwback. Yeah, yeah. This was very much a sort of, you know, immediate post 9-11, fuck the Muslims, we've got to kill them all kind of show. Um, and so <laughs> that was the main thing that, that kind of struck me about it. And to be honest, I didn't dig that much into it at that point. I knew they'd commissioned it for a second season. And sometime earlier this year, I was, I kind of made this decision that at some point I'm going to 
focus less on the podcast and and writing and do some more video work to try and basically to try and you know spread this kind of stuff to a wider audience you can get more audience with video than you can with audio so um and i like making videos <laughs> you know <laughs> it's it's more fun frankly editing video than editing audio um and so i thought the new jack ryan season is a good one because i know it has cia involvement i know it's a kind of big, high-budget, high-production-value show. It's actually, I mean, you said it, it's gone under the radar for a lot of people, but I think this just illustrates, to be honest, how much TV there is out there and yeah. how much of a kind of bubble you can be in regarding popular culture, because it's actually one of the most popular shows Amazon's ever produced. I think when it came out, the first season was their most streamed original production. Um, wow, okay. And that's... Okay, Amazon isn't the biggest streaming service in the world, that's Netflix, but still, you know, it's a big popular show, and yet a huge number of people have never even heard of it, to be honest, um, or certainly don't know kind of what it is and what it's about. Um, but I felt it would make a good, you know, topic for a video, and then obviously you got the trailers for the second season coming out and all of the political fury around that. And I thought, I really do actually have to now crack on and make this video project that I've been toying with. Um, I hadn't actually searched for all of those all of those clips I found of interviews and behind-the-scenes stuff and whatever, panels at Comic-Con. All of that stuff I actually found in about four weeks before the second season came out. Because I was working on it in the weeks coming up to the second season premiere. Oh, wow. Um, and I didn't have a firm idea in my head of actually what the content was going to be. Um, I actually, the way I originally conceived of it, it was going to have a lot more voiceover and a lot more of me explaining things. But then as I searched around for interview clips and what have you, I realized, God, there's an awful lot of this. You know, like a huge amount. I found dozens and dozens of clips, lots that I didn't even get around to using, where they're talking about, you know, their involvement with the government and how they... Uh, particularly those clips of Carlton Hughes where he keeps talking about how he wanted the show to sort of glamorize the people in the CIA and the Pentagon. Is that the, uh, that's one of the showrunners, he, right? He's the main showrunner. Yeah, yeah. He's the main guy okay. behind it. Although I think he's now been I wanted to, dropped for season three. Whatever. Um, I wanted to comment on that clip really quick because yeah, I found that particularly interesting because the guy seems like, at least to me, seems kind of like he's like a liberal guy, um, which... And he's sort of implying without if you read between the lines of what he's saying, he's sort of making it about Trump. It sounded like where the now is the time where we need to have like respect for our intelligence agencies, sort of in lieu of the fact that Trump, you know, and 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 the GOP are sort of trying to debunk the intelligence agencies for assessing that Russia hacked the election and were sort of embroiled in this, you know, this sort of thing where there seems to be a liberal knee-jerk reaction now to defend the CIA and defend our intelligence agencies, like, because it makes them feel like they're sort of fighting against Trump. So I don't, do you think I'm misreading that? Or do you think that that guy was sort of implying that when he was saying that? That's not the way I read it, but you could be right there, okay. that that's, that it, that there is a sort of element of the whole, yeah, the sort of liberal hyper-reaction against Trump thing going on. I read it as, this show was conceived several years ago. At that point, the CIA, the drone program, the torture program, all of that 
you know, horrible special forces operations, murdering children. (laughs) There was a lot of ugly stuff in the press in the second half of the Obama administration. NSA and mass surveillance, you know, the whole thing. They were getting kind of pilloried for a while there. Um, And one might argue that they used, cynically used the whole Russiagate fiasco and myth um, to reassert their power in the face of all of this criticism. And I I would more see Jack Ryan in that context, that when they first decided to reboot this show, that was at a time when the intelligence services were really getting a lot of criticism, which they aren't now. And in terms of the actual government agencies that were involved in this, I mean, obviously, on some, you know, they, they had to have gotten permission from the CIA to film at that location. I mean, there's no other way around that unless they CGI'd it or something, which I don't even know if, I don't even know if any movies have actually attempted that. You can tell me if they would try to attempt a CIA headquarters visit in CGI or with a set. But uh, that aside, um, that was, it's an interesting thing that at the end of the, sh- the episode or episodes, I'm assuming this is on the end of every episode, yep. it says that the CIA has not approved this production. Yeah, we we do not approve or endorse the contents of this production. Now, how does that actually make sense? Because they, you know, normally, and when you've done all this work, Tom, it's very obvious that the that the you know, there's a very delicate relationship here sometimes with these productions where the Pentagon will be like, "No, if you do this small tweak, then yeah, we can help you out here. But if you don't, we don't want to be involved. You know, we don't mm-hmm. want to approve this. So why?" What what do you think the purpose of this is in where the CIA wants to put a disclaimer at the end of the episode, but it's clear, obvious, that they gave them permission to film there. So on some level that they've approved it, are they trying to hide? Or, you know, what what kind of game might they be trying to play here? I mean, because it, it's just an odd juxtaposition. So explain wh- how you feel about that. Um, I guess you've got to go back to Zero Dark Thirty and all of the controversy around that. Because not just in terms of like whitewashing the torture program and making it seem like the torture program led to bin Laden, which it didn't, um, but that there was this thing about Mark Bowl being invited to a, a ceremony at Langley for the Navy SEALs on the Abbottabad raid, and that he was supposedly leaked classified information, including the names, the real names of the Navy SEALs and stuff like this. Mark Boll being the Hollywood screenwriter behind Zero Dark Thirty. The CIA's entertainment liaison office took a bit of a battering over all of that, and quite rightly. Um, And I think they got a lot more exposure than they ever thought they were going to get. A lot of documents came out through FOIA lawsuits and stuff like that that had never ever happened before. Um, And I think since then they have very much tried to cover their tracks in terms of what they're doing in the entertainment industry. I actually have a copy of their new manual that they issued after the Zero Dark Thirty controversies, um, which outlines in quite a lot of detail exactly how they're supposed to liaise with the entertainment industry, but also allows for things like unofficial liaisons with the entertainment industry. (laughs) And you have to wonder, what's an unofficial liaison? What the hell are they doing? (laughs) So... I think they were just trying to pretend like this this isn't to do with us when it absolutely is to do with them. Because it's not just that they let them film at Langley, and that's a pretty big thing. There's only maybe 10, 12 productions in the whole history of entertainment that have been granted that privilege. 
And that's out of 60, 70, maybe, that I've documented that had some kind of CIA support. You know, the vast majority of them weren't allowed to film at Langley. Um, so the fact that they were is a big signpost to say, yeah, the CIA were all over this. And then when you hear Wendell Pierce and Krasinski and others from the cast and crew talking about going to Langley and how much they spoke with them and how they had these long conversations about how they wanted their character to be portrayed. And I'm then left thinking again, what, isn't that implying that the CIA created the Jack Ryan character? Anyway, um, (laughs) Or that they're so heavily invested in it, they want to make sure it's like every iteration of it's like good, you know, good. The one that they want, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it fits yeah. with whatever their current PR and you know self-image uh, requirements are. Um, so the, it's clear that they were all over this. It, it, I mean, it'd be a joke. It's, it is an absolute joke for them to stick that credit at the end of the show to make it seem like, oh no, no, we went. This didn't really have much to do with the CIA. Um, and also the the phrasing of it, we did not approve or endorse the contents of this production. Well, yes, you did, because you reviewed the scripts. One of the show, the showrunner talked about you reviewing the scripts. He claims you didn't change anything, but I don't believe that. Um, or possibly that they reviewed them at a point when they had so much input on the scripts that they didn't need to change anything. <laughs> Maybe that's actually how we should read that comment. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. they did. They did approve and endorse it. They let them film at their headquarters. That's endorsing it. They did read and approve the script. That's approving it. So it's just a flat-out lie, to be honest. But it's also this kind of doublespeak that you get a lot with intelligence agencies where they're denying that... They didn't say, we weren't involved in this production. They said, we did not approve or endorse its contents, even though they actually did. It's very strange because just in terms of like how someone in the you know regular viewing audience would look at this they wouldn't even pay attention to something at the end credits they wouldn't be looking for something saying if the CIA approved it or not so i'm wondering is no, no, there, no, no. Is it's, it it's, almost... it's only nerds like me who sit there through the yeah. credits waiting to see what <laughs> government agencies were credited on the film <laughs> so that's that's what's odd to me is like why did they even put it on at all and i i guess my mind goes to this idea that was is there something that they think will maybe make the show seem more credible if it's not beholden to the CIA like does it give it some kind of edgy credibility like this show is about you know the real dirty and, and sort of hard cold nature of the CIA even though they're heroes we're sort of showing them in a realistic light and the CIA didn't approve this cuz you know we really wanted to show how it really is like and I, I don't know if it's just my personal interpretation of it but it is strange to me that they would put anything on it at all mm. you know saying that they approved or disapproved i mean and and you could tell me is this something that is this on several other shows or movies where there's an actual disclaimer that says the cia did not approve this i i've never seen it before with the cia i've occasionally seen it with the dod because i think their regulations actually say that any support is not to be construed as some kind of endorsement. But that's just, you know, some legal bullshit because the government isn't allowed to endorse commercial products. That's all that means. Yeah. Um, Interesting. That's why the DOD use it. I've never seen it before on a CIA thing. In fact, the CIA are basically never credited on movies. There's like, they're not even credited on The Recruit, which they basically wrote. Um... (laughs) They are credited on the end of the first Mission Impossible. They are credited at the end of 13 Hours, even though they had a bit of a falling out with Michael Bay and didn't let him film at Langley. I can't think of any other film they're actually credited on. 
um, let alone something like this, where they're sort of crediting themselves, but then at the same time distancing themselves, and you get into this whole double-think mess. I think that's what they're really going for, is more confusion than anything else. They want to confuse you about what's the relationship between the real CIA and the CIA on the screen. Yeah, and... You know, there have been some really, really strange uh, revelations of the past few years, especially with Russiagate happening in the background, where they're almost cartoonishly unbelievable things that the CIA has done, but yet they've been reported by credible reporters. So, for example, one of them was the musician Moby. I don't know if you heard about this, yeah, but yeah. Moby actually said that he was approached by a CIA agent of some kind to spread trump russia stuff like in the music scene or something i can, I can and believe it's just that. like yeah it's like whoa that's that's really fascinating um i don't see any reason why moby would lie about that i mean he is a braggart he he did try to say he dated natalie portman and that sort of blew up in his face but i don't see any reason why he'd lie about this and even uh seth rogan you know let some things slip about that bizarre movie the interview that he was making with James Franco, where he thinks that he was actually having negotiations with CIA people that didn't reveal that they were CIA people. And mm -hmm. he's actually said that in interviews. Mm -hmm. And now he gets really upset when people like Tim Chirac bring that up to him and quote that interview where he talks about that. So CIA seems to be doing more shenanigans out in the open than they did in the past. And I'm wondering, you know, they're not supposed to technically operate domestically, their charter is supposed to not allow them to. But I'm wondering if this is sort of a coming out party in a way where we know in 2015, the Smith-Munt Act, which prevented the government from directly, you know, transparently running domestic propaganda here, that was that was lifted and repealed in, in the end of the Obama administration. So I'm wondering, I mean, just, you know, totally, totally speculating here, I'm wondering if this has anything to do with that. If the CIA is doing more of this kind of crap uh, because of that and, and actually more brazenly involving themselves in domestic propaganda ops now, um, as opposed to like three or four years ago. Only that this thing about the CIA not being allowed to spread propaganda in the U S uh, has, has been a problem for them for a long time. There was a big thing about this with the, uh, with Victor Mark Cheshire's book where he, one of the things that the CIA took out of that book was where he was, mentioning that they had funded various European uh, publications, media outlets, newspapers, what have you, and planted stories in them, and that there was this problem that some of those stories were then being reprinted by the US press. Now, so you see what I mean, that the CIA is producing propaganda overseas, but some of that propaganda is finding its way back into the domestic US and therefore poses legal problems, because the CIA isn't allowed to do that. And Marchetti was talking about this, and this is one of the things they removed from his book before allowing publication. Um, so, yeah, this goes back decades, this issue. And I don't know whether the CIA are more explicit now. I mean, they've never been that out in the open or that explicit with anything that they do. And so I think it's maybe more a reaction to the increased knowledge of the CIA in the news media and entertainment media industries, that that is now something that's not exactly accepted and normalized, but at least quite widely recognized and known about. You have comedians making jokes about this, that kind of thing. Um, so 
I'm guessing it's more some attempt to manage that. I could be wrong. I, I don't know. That, that whole credit thing is weird. It's, I've never seen it before. I've never seen it in anything since. I don't know exactly what the hell that they were trying to achieve. Yeah, I, I, that stands out to me the most uh, for some reason. Yeah, just because it, it is so unusual. You know, as you say, this is seemingly the most sort of propagandistic show that's delivering these U.S. government narratives that we've seen in, in quite a while. And it also is a throwback to sort of this era of Islamophobia. Having not watched very much of season one at all, I mean, tell me more about this this sort of Islamophobia and what, like, is it all take place taking place in Afghanistan? Do they go to Syria? Do they go to Iraq? Is it about the Taliban? Is it about ISIS? Like, what is the what does the landscape look like? How are they portraying these people? Okay, so the main enemy is a terrorist cell or gang being run by a former ISIS member. That's how he's characterized. Um, and his headquarters is in Syria, but this cell seems to have reach into Yemen, France, the US. You know, it is the classic nightmare terror cell with, you know, people in every country. Um, okay. The sort of thing that's never actually existed, of course. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's kind of touching on a lot of different countries that have obviously been in the news over the recent years. It's very much trying to situate it the first season in the now, in, in the here and now. And, I mean, in terms of the Islamophobia, it, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous that Carlton Cuse said that whole thing about how we tried to have a, you know, whole spectrum of Muslim characters, which obviously I lampooned in the video. But the kind of summary I would make of it is that the only good Muslims in the show are working for the CIA. You have Jim Greer, Jack Ryan's boss, who for some reason they've rewritten as a Muslim, uh, but he's, you know, senior CIA guy. Wow. You, um, That's an interesting thing they do, they're do. they doing for woke points. Yeah, so yeah. they actually have his boss, like a station chief or something, but like being a Muslim guy? Uh, he's originally a station chief, and then he gets recalled to Langley over some whatever thing that happens. Um, doesn't really matter. Okay. <laughs> and that's how he ends up back at Langley, and that's how Jack Ryan meet. Um but yeah, yeah, it's for such a kind of horrendously racist and neoconservative piece of television, they do do little things like that to try and appeal to liberal TV reviewers and the woke Twitter and all the rest of it. Um, the other, I'm, I'm trying to think, who are the other Muslim characters in the show? Aside from the terrorists, uh, there's a, the terrorist's wife, the, the ex-ISIS guy's wife, uh, runs off with the kids. Um, she defects i guess um she goes to a refugee camp on the border with turkey and she basically hands herself over to the government and says i have information about my husband he's a terrorist i want asylum and a visa to go to the u.s um so she works for the cia ultimately as well so she's obviously good muslim the only other muslims in the show pretty much are terrorists all of them or at least you know horrible people who are hanging out with the terrorists and that's it. So this is the spectrum, is it? <laughs> this, this, this is Carlton Cuse's wide spectrum of Muslim characters is, oh, sorry, and there's, you know, like, there's a guy who's a human trafficker. He, like, traffics women for sex purposes and stuff like that, and the CIA have to hook up with him at one point to find the wife of the ISIS guy in the kind of, you know, refugee people smuggling circuit. 
he's the only other Muslim who doesn't. But then again, he ends up working with the CIA. <laughs> you see what I mean? It's like this recurring pattern that, as far as they're concerned, Muslims are either terrorists or should be working for the CIA to help against the terrorists. And that's all that Muslims are. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it sounds terrible. I mean, it sounds even more Islamophobic and uh, problematic than Homeland was. Oh, con- from considerably describing more. It to me. Homeland is, is yeah. very much a kind of Obama-era spy show. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, yeah. it's got a more liberal twinge to it. It's got female central character. It's, you know, they, they actually talk about, you know, we're kind of staring into the abyss and, oh, we're surrounded by evil, but that means we have to be evil ourselves and all this kind of nonsense. Whereas Jack Ryan is basically just, there's evil brown people out there and we need to kill them or stop them. And that's it. It's very much a sort of show for the Trump era rather than the Obama era. Does this first season mostly take place in Afghanistan or is, no, no, or is it, it sort of all over the place? No, no, no. Afghanistan only appears in as much as it's part of Ryan's backstory. It takes place in Yemen, Syria, France, and the US for the most part. I see. Okay. So they're not really showing like an active war zone that's really happening right now in, in, a, in a sort of in-depth way. There's jumping around. Yeah. I see. It's a classic, okay. you know, globe-trotting spy thriller. Yeah. So season two is even more interesting because it's trying to parallel a very real situation to, to a certain extent that's happening in the background. And the timing of it, um, I, I thought, was particularly strange. And it's also the timing lines up with a Call of Duty video game mm-hmm. that also has a plot about a Venezuelan authoritarian leader trying to launch some kind of massive terror attack or something. But it's remarkable that it's all about a special regime change operation where the CIA are trying to somehow disrupt or overthrow this right-wing authoritarian leader who rules Venezuela, who has connections to oligarchs. Mm. And just what's interesting about that is that that's sort of the opposite of reality in and of itself because the current leader of Venezuela is actually a Chavista who is trying to nationalize things in the country. And the right-wing people in the country are actually the ones trying to depose him. The people who are anti-Maduro are, generally speaking, the right-wing segment of the population. So it's sort of a fascinating reversal that they wouldn't even portray. They wouldn't. It sounds like they're not even attempting to portray the leader of Venezuela in this show as sort of like an evil communist or something. I mean, is that is that true? It's not really clear where he is ideologically. He is okay. a kind of horrible, corrupt authoritarian, but he also makes some kind of vague stuff, rhetoric about the revolutionary process and things that I guess are vaguely playing on the whole Chavista thing. Um I don't know quite what they were trying to do with that. I mean, it's a bit of a mess in places, is this second season. The plot doesn't make much sense. It, there's too much of it. There's too many things that happen, and we aren't really left to mull over the consequences before something else happens, and now we're in a helicopter going somewhere else, and blah, blah, blah. It's a bit... It's very much worse written and more hazy and worse paced and plotted than the first season is. But nonetheless, it is very much the president of Venezuela... <laughs> who is called Nicolas, like Maduro, is a horrible, corrupt authoritarian with ties to evil international corporations. So yeah, total reversal. He is Juan Guaido, basically. 
that's the joke is that the reyes character in reality would be guaido whereas the opposition who the cia are supporting would actually be maduro fascinating but in the show we're presented with this opposition character uh gloria banalde who is a sort of she they, they, they designed her quite well because she appeals to everyone from kind of liberal centrists to genuine left-wingers she sort of has a bit of a feminist but a bit of a human rights social justice thing but she's got a slight socialist tinge and you know what I mean? She just sort of represents that whole block of the political spectrum. And it makes out like that's who the CIA have supported in Latin America, which is just not just in Venezuela, but the whole of Latin America. That's like a complete joke. That's absurd that they tried to pull that one on people. And I don't know whether it's been effective. I haven't really seen much in the way of political responses to the show going, yeah, yeah, we need to overthrow the government of Venezuela. Yeah, they're so authoritarian and corrupt. But that's very much what they were going for. Yeah, it's it, it's strange. I mean, does the timing of season two, how does it line up with the actual regime change attempts that the Trump administration was trying to do in Venezuela, like with the humanitarian convoy, um, that Richard Branson concert? Uh, you know, the, the like, when was this, when did this show actually premiere? I mean, what, like, tell me a little bit about that timing and how that lines up. Oh, it only came out, I don't know, six weeks ago or something. Um, okay. I'm, ju I'm so just it thinking, premiered, yeah, yeah, it was the start of November. Or the very, so it premiered relatively recently, but it must have been written for a while. I mean, this show must have been in production for quite a while, I'm assuming. Yeah, sure, right? sure. They're not like filming these episodes in, in real time. They're, they're, it's binge-watchable, right? Like there's the oh, whole totally. season already. Okay. So they've already probably been shooting this, I'm assuming, for almost a year so it does raise the question of, you know, if they've, if they've explicitly saying they don't get approval from the CIA, I mean, why on earth <laughs> would they have this sh a show about this that's sort of happening on a parallel track with an actual attempted regime change operation in Venezuela? One thing that I find curious is that at the end of season one, um, Jim Greer has, Jack Ryan's boss, has kind of re-established his reputation. Him and Jack Ryan have taken down the evil terror cell. So he's now back in the CIA's good books, and so they make him a station chief again and send him to Moscow, right? And one of the last shots in the first season is he leaves a kind of a folder for Jack Ryan in his office, and when he opens it up, there's like a little brochure saying, you know, welcome to Moscow, see you in Moscow, whatever. And the implication is that in season two, the two of them are going to go over to Russia, and that's what the second season's going to be about. And there's a few other little dialogue references and stuff. Um, like, they even talked about a uh, a Soviet-Chechen war. That's something that appears in the dialogue in season one. And there never was a Soviet-Chechen war. The two Chechen wars were both after the Soviet Union was dismantled. But in any case, they were hinting in that direction for a lot of season one, and clearly somewhere along the line they changed their minds and said, no, we want to focus on Venezuela. And given that they but were so close to the CIA, and as Krasinski has admitted, talked a lot with the CIA to try and make the show more relevant, and more of a filter through which people can see real-life events, I can't help but think the CIA suggested this to them, that they shifted <clears throat> they were originally planning to do season two as some kind of Russian thing, and it became wow. a Venezuelan thing, I can only assume as a result of their discussions with the CIA. 
Wow, that's I, that's really really fascinating to me because clearly, you know, people in the in the like CNN and MSNBC would be like, oh, the Trump administration is pivoting away from Russia because he's compromised by Russia. But what you just said is really interesting because it seems to imply that the national security apparatus in our country, you know, the military industrial complex, the CIA, the national security state in general, is also pivoting away from Russia. Um, and I'm not saying that just because this you're sort of gleaning this from the show's pivot in terms of the plot, but this sort of lines up with a lot of other things that I think are happening right now. And in my mind, I'm thinking if this show you know, had another year to come up with the plot for season two, we might actually be seeing something about China mm-hmm. uh, from in terms of Jack Ryan, you know, doing battle with Chinese spies or Chinese terrorists of some kind. So it's, it's, that's very interesting because there is, in general, there is some kind of pivot away from Russia, that, that sort of that hot we were getting bombarded by propaganda about Putin and Russia and Crimea and mm-hmm. Ukraine. And even though this impeachment currently happening centers around Ukraine, the, the level of heat, the, the, the propaganda against Russia has been significantly dialed back. And, you know, whatever apparatus is generating that seems to have moved on to other things that they feel are more important. So I think that that's a very interesting insight that, you know, if the national security state and CIA are basically directing where the show is going to go, at some point they're like, you know what? This Russia thing is we're sort of going to put this on the back burner now. Like this is not our priority anymore. And obviously I think, this I is think all it's speculation. Partly, no, no, sure, sure. But I know where you're coming from. There's, there's, I'm kind of pulled in two different directions on that point. The first is that there is still plenty of Russophobic pop culture out there. I mean, anyone who watched the third season of Stranger Things will just be sat there thinking, did they like get Ronald Reagan to write this or something. <laughs> it's I didn't most, even know that. That's I didn't see it. It's the most hideously kind of anti-communist, anti-Soviet, pro-capitalist, pro-American trash you'll ever see. Um, in the third season, it's the Russians who are digging a big underground base beneath a shopping mall and they're accidentally releasing the whatever demons, blah, 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 same thing you've already seen in the first two seasons. Um, it, it's hilariously Russophobic. Um and Chernobyl as well, the very high-profile HBO series. Uh, I did a recent episode with Max Parry where we discussed those two shows. So I do think Russophobia is still very much present in pop culture. But when it comes to something that's as elite as Jack Ryan, you know, big budget, big stars, big names, full CIA support, I think they wanted them to do something that was like right on the agenda right now. They can come back to Russia later, and I'm sure they will. But you know, I, I guarantee you at some point in the next six to eight months, there will be a new spy show that's all about Russia that may or may not be supported by the CIA. But with this one, I think chances are they, I mean, they must have known that the Mueller report wasn't going to find very much and that Russiagate was going to turn out to be a busted flush. And they probably knew that the whole Skripal thing just wasn't going to last, that this transatlantic uh, hate fest and paranoia fest that was going on up until at least 2018 was kind of falling apart for them. It just wasn't that effective anymore. And so, like you say, maybe they've now decided, okay, what what's else is on our agenda? And one of those things is Venezuela, and that's how it ended up in Jack Ryan. I would see it more that way, if you're with me. No, totally. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting take. 
And in the plot of season two, I mean, walk us through what happens. I mean, do they, uh, spoilers for anybody who actually gives a shit about what, you know, this show and, and wants to get invested in it. What Walk us through what happens in the plot of season two. How does it conclude? Did, did they actually end up successfully uh, deposing this Venezuelan leader? Does he launch some kind of, de- you know, terrorist attack in the West? Like, what what's the deal? What happens in it? Well, like I say, the plot is really convoluted and doesn't make any sense. But in terms of the Venezuela <laughs> thing, it really, really doesn't. I, I've watched that second season, not like twice properly, but I watched it the first time, didn't make any sense of it, and then kind of skipped through the second time to find all the little clips for the video and what have you. Um, and I was like, this show doesn't make any sense. It's not clear why any of these people are doing any of the things that they are. Um, and not in a good way, not like Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> um, like in a really really bad way um, sorry your point no there's a serious point here um at the end of the season basically uh there's an election um that's what it's all building up to is a big election in the final episode and reyes realizes he's going to lose the election the evil dictator guy so he tries to shut it down he tries to get the military to close the ballot boxes and you know shut down the polling centers and everything and it ends up with Gloria Benalde, our social justice Twitter mob warrior, um, <laughs> winning by a landslide. And so everything's fine again. Oh, but they do also have a big shootout at the presidential palace because Reyes sort of looks like he's not actually going to um, allow himself. To, he's not going to leave, basically. He's not going to honor the election result. And also... He kidnaps Greer. He kidnaps the senior CIA officer. And, oh, my God. And in a scene that I, I swear they have ripped this off from season four of Homeland. You remember in season four of Homeland, which is all in Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's a bit where Saul gets kidnapped by the evil terrorists. You may or may not remember I, this. I, I didn't. I probably didn't watch it. No. Okay. Um, and he plays dead in his cell to get the guard to come in. And then he attacks the guard and kills him and escapes. Right. Exact okay. same fucking thing happens in season two of Jack Ryan. <laughs> oh, God. They have so clearly ripped it off. They've just been sat there watching Homeland trying to come up with ideas. So they've gone, oh, kidnapped CIA officer. Oh, and he plays dead. And, oh, that's clever. Yeah, right. We'll just totally copy that. Um, so anyway, so then Jack Ryan and the rest of them turn up to try and liberate Greer from the presidential palace. And they find him and rescue him and everything else. And then Jack Ryan just goes like full Rambo. And decides, no, no, I'm going to just go and kill Reyes. I'm going to just go and... <laughs> they're not... Uh, by this point, the embassy and the CIA station have all been shut down. They've all fled the country. These guys are just left in the country doing whatever the hell they like. Totally rogue. No supervision, no accountability to anyone. And Jack Ryan just says, fuck it, I'm going to go and try and kill him. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's amazing. Does he? No, no, no. In the end, they sort of have a gunfight and he, they, no one actually ends up dead. But... <laughs> it really is quite wow. funny in the second season jack ryan is like this unhinged character who just runs around the world chasing people on rooftops and getting into gunfights and killing people and it's like who do you answer to man aren't you supposed to be an employee of the u.s government who who on earth is even you, you don't seem to even have any orders here um, <laughs> it's bizarre that second season it's very very different from the first but yeah that's what happens in the end interesting so are there any spectacular like terror attacks or anything like that? Or does it just sort of end up that this, you know, that the, the good person wins the election and, uh, and then everything's 
you know, good. Yeah, pretty like much. A happy they, they, yeah, yeah. They reunite her with her husband. Her husband was the evil dictator's former home office, you know, domestic affairs minister or whatever. And because he came across the secret plan to mine the unobtainium in the jungle or whatever the hell's going on, <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he gets kidnapped and taken off to some horrible prisoner camp out in the middle of nowhere. And the CIA liberate him and they reunite them on the deck of a US warship loaned to the producers by the Pentagon. That's basically how the second season ends. Wow. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> it's hideous, what, man. It's it's really really bad. Yeah. It sound. I mean, it sounds. Uh, it's almost like an anachronistic uh, thing that it, it even exists at all mm. in this era. I mean, I, re- it's, I it's, recently rewatched Commando. You remember the Schwarzenegger movie from the eighties? Oh, Commando. Of oh, yeah. Um, because I, I got a DoD file about how they were negotiating over the script. They ended up not. The DoD didn't work on the film in the end, but. I was kind of rewatching the film to try and make sense of these documents. Um, and honestly, that film is more fucking progressive and up-to-date than Jack Ryan is. And it's a goddamn body count movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not kidding. Though it also does have, interestingly, the same meme in it about the US covertly supporting some kind of left-wing revolutionaries in Latin America against an evil dictator. You remember the whole thing is about this evil dictator who wants to take back his country and... Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. goes and kills everybody. Um, same meme, same sort of basic little twist of history. And given that that film came out right in the middle of the 80s with the whole Sandinista thing going on and the Contra War, you have to wonder where where those producers got that idea from and what they were trying to do. But yeah, like I say, Commando is actually a more progressive cultural product than Jack Ryan. Well, that's an interesting thing you mentioned, Commando, because... Uh it seems like if I think back to any eighties movie that represents some kind of South American, you know, uh, militias or anything, the ones that are always opposed to the U S seem like the crazy right wing fascists. They're never portrayed in movies as being like communist revolutionaries. So for example, like red Dawn, there's no indication at all that any of these like South American soldiers or whatever that Russia's brought over to the U S or any, have any ideology that's linked to communism at all. That to me is fascinating because the old school way, like red scare, you know, make it all about how the communists are evil, but then sort of remove stripping that away and just making it sort of these cartoonish villains that just don't really have a clear ideology. It's interesting how these things evolve over time. Mm. Um, and, and, and sort of these narratives and, and yeah, Commando, Red Dawn, what you're describing here, they, they have similarities in, in this way. Very much so. Jack Ryan feels like a 1980s production, particularly the second season. Yeah. And also, I mean, it, there is something interesting about how the first Rambo movie was sort of, you know, it wasn't like a, a, a pro military movie necessarily, but the rest of the movies are. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you probably have some, you've probably done some digging on those, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, well that, maybe we can, we can save that for another time. Is there anything else about the Jack Ryan show that you'd like to mention before we wrap? Cause I feel like I, I, I feel like I probably missed some things from your video. Well, I don't know. Go and watch the video. <laughs> this is all I would say to people. <laughs> if you want to understand a bit more about my take on the show and you don't want to actually have to sit through this garbage, which I can understand. 
honestly, you'll learn more and probably have more fun watching my half-hour video than you will watching eight hours of Jack Ryan. And I'm not, not just saying that to kind of puff myself up. I actually genuinely tried to make it interesting and entertaining to watch. So, yeah, I can't think of anything else. Watch the video, please. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll just leave our audience with this um, question, Tom. Is there anything else currently in pop culture, movies, film, any sort of entertainment product that you've been paying attention to recently besides this Jack Ryan series that you think has some interesting connections to the U.S. government? Uh, well, the big one coming up is the Top Gun sequel, of course, which is coming out next summer. Um, oh, that's right, yeah. Top Gun Maverick, because they really couldn't think of a better title. And the interesting thing, I guess, about that, or there's lots of interesting things about it, but um, is that this is a project that, why didn't it happen earlier? The original Top Gun was a massive success, critically, box office-wise, propaganda-wise, the whole shebang. So why didn't they make another one? And the answer, actually, is because of the DOD and because of a massive sexual harassment and assault scandal. Do you want me to get into that just briefly? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I Please. Okay, so the original Top Gun came out in 86, and in, I think it was 1991, at the Tailhook Conference in Las Vegas. And Tailhook is a kind of non-profit association for ocean-based pilots, military pilots, you know, Marine Corps, Navy pilots who fly off air ca aircraft carriers and so on. And uh, about 100 Naval and Marine Corps aviators uh, basically sexually assaulted and harassed, and in some cases it seems even raped, dozens of women and several men in a massive kind of drunken, bullying fuck-up at this hotel in Las Vegas. And this was a huge, huge scandal, obviously. There were, you know, NCIS investigation, Inspector General investigation, the whole lot. And so when the producers turned up saying, oh, we want to make another Top Gun film, we want to make the sequel, we obviously can't do it without the military's help. The military took one look at it and said, no, we can't have this portrait of a heavy-drinking, womanizing sex pest, which is basically what Tom Cruise is in the first film. Uh, we can't have this. We can't support a film that kind of makes us look like we endorse this sort of culture. Um, and so the film wasn't made. And it was shelved for like 20 years. It wasn't until I think 2012 that Jerry Bruckheimer went back to the Pentagon and said, okay, we're now thinking about doing a Top Gun sequel again. Um, and so that's why it didn't happen for so long. And now we have this film, which absolutely was supported by the Pentagon. In fact, they even broke some of their own rules in order to help support it. Um, if you read the contract signed that I obtained under FOIA uh, between the producers and the Pentagon, it basically hands over command authority to Jerry Bruckheimer. It says, we're giving them, not only are we giving them access to this massive naval air station in California, but we're actually saying the producers can even call in planes from other bases in order to participate in this production. Well, that's not... Wow. You're not supposed to let Bruckheimer make those sorts of decisions, are you? I mean, what if the Japanese attack or something? Um, and the contract also says that part of the process would involve the scriptwriters meeting with Navy officials to, as they put it, write in key talking points into the script. I don't know exactly what those are. I'm still trying to get the documents on what script input they had, but... Yeah, it's the usual story. Top Gun 2 is going to be a smorgasbord of military propaganda. 
And also, I guess the only thing I've really heard about it is that the big selling point is that Tom Cruise apparently is going to be flying real jet fighters in the movie. <laughs> what do you have you heard that? I have heard it. It's not true, unfortunately. Oh, so, so was that was that a hoax? The scenes that you will see of Tom Cruise inside real fighters actually flying are being piloted by military pilots. They're like sat in the back seat actually flying oh, the plane and he sat in the front seat playing with the joysticks and what have you making it look like he's flying them um so so he actually went in a plane but they had a a, a pilot piloting it interesting mm, mm. so yeah that whole okay. thing about tom cruise learns to fly f-18 or whatever is is nonsense it didn't actually happen <laughs> it's a fun story oh, wow that's so funny yeah it is a fun story his ego is probably bruised by the fact that uh, people will know that he's not actually flying the planes because that was—I think—that was like his original intention. He was like, "I'm only going to do this movie if I get to fly the plane." <laughs> I do think he, like you say, he fed into that idea. I think he was yeah. kind of on the QT at least <laughs> promoting the idea that he was actually flying the planes in this film because you know Tom Cruise is in some ways the last kind of classic movie star. You look at someone—I mean, who's really big in Hollywood? In the last few years, someone like The Rock, who isn't really a conventional movie star, I mean, he's an ex-wrestler, for heaven's sake, and possibly the next president. So he's not your standard textbook Hollywood film actor. And when I look around no. and think, well, who really is? I'm like, well, we're still kind of stuck with Tom Cruise. I mean, the guy's getting up in years now, but he's still very bankable. He's still a typical Hollywood movie star, and just, there aren't very many of them anymore. Not that I'm saying no, that's a I bad mean, thing, I'm just observing. No, it's definitely the end of an era. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, Brad Pitt and maybe Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Cruise might be like sort of the last of those old school Hollywood stars. Yeah, um, but did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's pretty <laughs> terrible. I did. And I've a lot of people I know loved it, but we, we were astonished, honestly, about how bad it was. And I I was kind of sad about it because I was, uh, you know, I still I still dig Tarantino. Totally. I loved Bum, I loved Django. Out. I loved the the other cowboy one that I can't remember the title of. Um, the Hateful Eight. I thought was a great movie. Yeah, I found Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just horribly boring. It's like what? What's yeah, the, what same. is the point in this movie? And it's like three hours long or something. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. And this and the sad part is, you know, as bad as it was, it still stands apart from most other Hollywood productions that are just, you know. Heavy CGI set extensions, t changes during post-production reshoots. I mean, this felt like as bad as it was. At least it felt like a, a movie made by a filmmaker. It's just too bad that it wasn't a good movie. No, I know what you mean. It felt like a movie that was actually someone's vision for a movie. I wanted to leave you with this sure. because uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about any more silly movies um, that that you know or movie productions that work with the military, but. Captain Marvel um, was one that I could really caught my attention for being heavily uh, linked together with sort of advertising mm. for the U.S. military. I think specifically the yeah. Air Force, maybe. Yeah. I think you've already written about that, but uh, did you have a chance to see Avengers Endgame? I did see Endgame, yeah. Or spoilers for people who haven't seen it. What did you think about the whole idea of Tony Stark basically using like Thanos' genocide powers against... Um, like to you know save everyone at the end. <laughs> I thought that was oddly off-putting. Uh, that it was okay for Tony Stark to just turn everything into dust. I don't know. What, how did you feel about that? I just thought it was an odd way to wrap things up. 
the whole movie was odd. <laughs> I mean, it, the movie really should have been called The Avengers Back to the Future um, rather than Avengers yeah. Endgame because most of the movie consists of this awfully complicated, doesn't make any sense, time travel plot that, <laughs> that, that functions beautifully as a piece of fan service that kind of touches on all the previous films and blah, blah, blah. You know, I get it. You know, it was a clever idea in terms of we've got to wrap this thing up somehow. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the whole ending is, the whole final battle sequence of that film is worrying in so many ways because as is increasingly becoming the case, they're fighting against a faceless CGI army. It's just some monsters that they have to hack their way through. They're totally, you know, there's no personality or motivation or humanity to them at all. They're just an evil thing that needs to be destroyed. And that mentality is always something that bothers me in movies because it's like, that's really base. You know, that's, that's, that appeals to the really ugly, fearful, nasty side of people. Then you had that horribly tonistic moment where Captain Marvel is going to go and get the glove with the magic crystals on it. Um, <laughs> and, and all the female superheroes stand up as one and says, you know, like, we're behind her or we're backing her up or we're going to help her or whatever the fuck it is. And it's like, okay, so in this franchise in which you've literally never made a film with a female protagonist, you're now going to throw in this hideous tokenistic oh look at all the women standing together look at captain marvel she's beyonce or whatever the fuck kind of moment that i I really didn't like that and i can't imagine many women looked on that as some kind of heroic moment for women (laughs) um which is clearly (laughs) what they were going for and then it finishes up after all of this destruction and all of this fighting and everything the final fight is actually quite good because it involves tony stark outwitting his opponent he doesn't defeat him through sheer violence which is how most marvel victories are won he actually outthinks him and tricks him right it's you know nice and then he just snaps his fingers and kills everyone and so we go back to the oh just mass destruction and this is one of the problems i have with marvel movies is that basically the only way in which conflict is resolved in them is through violence It's never through ingenuity or creativity or outwitting your opponent or setting a trap or, you know, all those other things that you can do to defeat an opponent. No, it's just a fight. Every fucking film ends with a massive fight of some kind. And um, I'm actually in the early stages of writing a book all about superheroes and government involvement and how superheroes function as a kind of state propaganda. I'm working on it with Trisha Jenkins, you know, who wrote the book on the CIA in Hollywood, literally wrote the book on the CIA in Hollywood. Um, So we're going to get into at least some of all of this. But yeah, that ending moment, they had a chance there. They They could have done something different. They could have actually made him outwitting Thanos be the way in which that battle ends. But no, they didn't. They had to return to the mass CGI destruction. They just don't know how to do anything else. Yeah, and, and not just destruction, but like a genocidal mm. sort of effect where everyone just literally gets turned into like ash. Yeah, they just disintegrate. It's a holocaust. Yeah, yeah it was just such a strange choice because the you know the previous movie, if it hadn't been a, a cl- ending on a cliffhanger, it would have been interesting in the sense that the bad guy wins and he mm. just does genocide on half the population. But yeah, it just uh, it is very unsettling to me um, that Tony Stark just you know decides to just turn everybody into ash as revenge. And, and I, if I'm thinking of the only Marvel movie that didn't end 
with a, a a giant fight sequence where the where the villain was defeated through violence, it might, it might be Doctor Strange. Um, okay, where yeah, it is little... through some kind of clever. You know, yeah, the, there's some clever writing in there, I suppose. But, sure, the Doctor Strange character um, is something a little different. It's more kind of sci-fi fantasy than straight-up military propaganda. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, it was great to have you today, Tom, and uh, I I hope we covered everything. Um, I feel like we might have missed a few things, but um, let's do this again sometime in the future, and uh, everybody needs to check out Spyculture.com is a great resource. So go to uh, Tom Secker's YouTube channel. It's just called Tom Secker. Your Patreon site is patreon.com slash Tom Secker. And you're on Twitter at Spyculture. So check all those things out. Had a great time talking to you today, Tom. Have a great rest of your day. And we'll do this again sometime soon. Yeah, I hope so, Robbie. Good talking to you. Hey, this is Robbie again. If you liked what you heard on today's podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. Depending on the amount you donate per episode or per month, uh, we have different bonus tiers and bonus content and a bunch of freebies as well. So please check that out. And thank you so much for your continuing support. Take care.